0: dismissed to CFC Kids. This morning, Jesus is going to address the issue of greatness. And I think probably some of us, maybe a lot of us, um, We wrestle with this desire for greatness. Ever since you were a little kid in the toy room and you had gotten to a toy first and then another kid wants to play with it, probably most of us weren't like, oh sure, I love you. We probably thought, me first, mine. I had it first. And that's our major complaint that we bring to our parent. But I had it first. I was first. Now, if I'm first in line, don't cut me. And we think we grow out of that until you're like standing at line, in line at Starbucks or something and then someone just stands right, stands right in front of you. A couple years ago, I was in the airport and it's this really long line. And I was, I was, I was there with a friend and we're just finally about to approach the booth and some lady just came, I don't know, just came out of some terminal somewhere, didn't stand in line at all, and stood right in front of me. And I just started battling the flesh right there. You know, I was here first. There's a firstness that we desire. Some of us, maybe on the other end of the spectrum of extremes, um, don't really have a desire for firstness because we don't really have much ambition at all. And we guise it under humility. But it's not really humility, it maybe is laziness that uses humility as an excuse. Oh, I don't want to be great. Oh, I don't want to be great. And so I don't do anything. Neither of those are how Jesus talks about greatness. There's nothing wrong with being great. There's nothing wrong with being first. There's nothing wrong with having advantages and privileges, skills, talents, education, money, stuff. Greatness isn't wrong. Greatness has to be redefined. And he's going to redefine it for us because the disciples need it badly. And 2,000 years later, disciples still need it badly. And so join me in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We can get a lesson on greatness from Jesus himself. If you look at verse 30, we we jump right in uh, with Jesus and his disciples. They went on from there where they were, where we were last week. They went on from there and passed through Galilee And he did not want anyone to know. There's his privacy again. Why? For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Now why don't they understand what Jesus is talking about? Well, Not only do they not understand that theologically their hearts can't grasp That this one who is great, this one who is able to calm storms, cast out demons, heal diseases, this one who is unsurpassed in greatness is going to be killed? That's not great. He's basically telling his disciples, hey, keep it quiet because if they catch me, or when they catch me, we lose. I lose. I'm going to lose my life. I'm going to lose my privilege. I'm going to lose my ability to choose where I go. I'm going to be shackled Dragged, tortured, beaten, stripped, and hung up on a cross. But then he tells them, through that defeat, I gain victory, rising again. But they can't—they can't even hear that. All the death stuff is just loser, loserville, man. We're not—we don't want to march toward loser status. We want to be first, and we want to be great. So they—they just can't comprehend it, and they're afraid to ask him because he's already rebuked them more than once. By calling them faithless generation, how long do I have to put up with you? How long do I have to tell you the same things over and over and you still don't get it? And so the last thing they want to do is, is pull him aside one more time and say, I don't know what in the world you're talking about. But many Christians today have no idea what Jesus is talking about when he talks about suffering as a path to greatness. And so instead they'll flock to churches that talk about Greatness the way they already understand it. That God wants you to have the bigger house and the better car. Jesus inverts greatness. So he teaches them about the centrality of his death and resurrection again. He's already done this. But he brings it to the fore again. And then Mark tells us they didn't get it in verse 32. Now he's going to show us how, how, to what extreme they didn't get it. They begin to argue about who's the best. Just like little kids, just like all of us are at heart. We're just little kids at heart that need God's parenting. Verse 33, and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So it's like a parent barging into the bedroom and the siblings were arguing about something and they know the argument is stupid and they know that they're ashamed to explain to the parent what they were arguing about and he just busts in, like, what were you guys talking about? And they're like, <laughs> you know, we don't want to go there again. Because they know at least this much, that's probably not the most mature thing to do, is argue with one another about who's the best. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, He said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. If you're going to be great, you have to be willing to be last, not first. And ironically, paradoxically, that's what makes you first. Your firstness doesn't come by being first in line. Your firstness comes by being first in line and then letting someone else take first in line. That's greatness. And as an example, he takes, who knows, maybe Peter's little nephew or something, and, he, and his little toddler maybe, and brings him into the middle of the room, picks him up in his arms, and he says, he says to them in verse 37, if you receive one such child, someone who's like a child, a little one, in my name you receive me. And if you receive me, you don't just receive me, but you receive him who sent me. You receive the Father. You'll notice that he doesn't say, in order to be first, you have to be like the child. And he makes that point in other places. That's not his point here. His point here isn't, if you're going to be first, you have to be like a child. Notice his point is, if you're going to be first, you have to be a receiver of people that are like children. Why use a child? Well, if you ever have been out with your kids... And your kids knock something over or your kids are a little bit louder than is an appropriate volume for being out in a restaurant or something like that. And then you see another couple and um, they don't have kids and they just kind (laughs) of scoff at your kids, right? Uh, That was the culture then. Like multiply that. Kids were last. A lot of the kids didn't even survive. So some of them probably protected their hearts from maybe giving too much credence to, to the child, and many of them aren't going to live, and so a child wouldn't even really be paid attention to, and he was big enough, smart enough, or she was big enough, smart enough, to contribute to society. Until you're able to contribute to society, you're, you're a burden. You have to be fed, you have to be led, you have to be told how loud to be, how quiet to be, where to go, sit, stop, take your finger out of your orifices, right? You're just constantly managing the child, because the child needs to be constantly managed. The child is unable to do things for themselves. They're helpless, they're little, they're vulnerable, they're defenseless. And Jesus is saying, your firstness is going to be shown not in you becoming vulnerable like a child, but recognizing other people's vulnerability and then doing something about it besides shooing them away. Get away, you're annoying, but instead taking them up in your arms like I'm doing with this child right here. And caring for them. You're not going to get recognition for it. People are going to think you're weird for it. People are going to say you're wasting your time doing it. But you do it. Because you have privilege that the little one doesn't. And you use your privilege to address the needs of the underprivileged. So Jesus is not saying, to be great you have to diminish your greatness. He doesn't say that. To so be someone who has firstness, you have to take all your advantages in life and squash them. That's not what he's saying. It's the opposite. Use your advantages not for self promotion, but use your advantages to help those who don't have the advantage. Use your privilege and prominence to help those who don't have privilege and don't have prominence. That's greatness. I wonder if some Christians and, and some of them they do it rightly but some Christians maybe adopt a sort of poverty mentality where I'm just going to get rid of all my stuff and I'm just going to um, I'm not going to pursue any education, I don't want any career. I just want to be like Jesus, man, just wandering around. I don't have a home. I don't you know, that's not what Jesus was doing. You don't have a mission to get crucified on a, on a on a cross and it's a different mission. What Jesus is asking here is not for you to not be great in any way, to not have any privilege, to pretend like God hasn't talented you with anything, that he hasn't blessed you with resources, pretend like that stuff doesn't exist. No, thanks God, I don't want stuff. I don't want things. I don't want experience or education or skills. No, he's saying use your greatness to help those that aren't great, to help those that need help. So he doesn't want you to eliminate greatness, diminish your advantages, but address the little ones. So then he has a case in point. Here's an example of how the disciples didn't get it. It's really ironic. So verse 38, John said to him, and this probably wasn't in the same conversation, but at some point this conversation happened, and Mark is putting it here so you can get an exam, see an example of what Jesus was trying to fix and undo in the hearts of the disciples. because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. So let's stop there a second. What is the complaint of the disciples? Because when I'm reading this, I'm like, man, what is the big deal? There's a lot of demons out there, apparently. We talked about that last week. So many people are, are oppressed by demonic powers, especially when and where they are in the Gospel of Mark. And John and the disciples go up to some guy who was expelling demons and going, hey, Stop that. Why does he want them to stop? He says, because he wasn't following us. It wasn't because he wasn't doing it right. It wasn't because he was casting out demons in the name of some other God or something like that. They weren't following us, man. They weren't wearing the, the discipleship 12, the D12 t-shirt with the disciples' pictures on it. You know, they, weren't, they didn't have the signed autograph commission from Jesus like we do. The 12 had, from Jesus himself, been given the authority to go out and cast demons. They spent personal time with Jesus. They've been educated during these almost three years uh, through the personal instruction of the greatest teacher to ever live. And then they see some guy who, he's not part of the group. He's not part of the 12. This isn't the 13th disciple. It stops at 12, man. 12 tribes. Of israel 12 disciples don't you get it there is no 13th stop he wasn't official and his official status his unofficial status bothered the disciples so what mark is help asking you to see is remember when jesus picked up that little child and said hey if you receive a little one who who doesn't have the same privilege and status as you that's discipleship that's greatness but if you reject them that's loserville. So then Mark wants you to see for instance there was a time when the disciples were really ticked off that this underprivileged person that didn't have didn't get to sit at the feet of Jesus he didn't get the same official status as Jesus gave the other 12 but he was trying. He was out there he was casting out demons and what's ironic is it says He was casting out demons, not that he was just trying to, but he was actually casting out demons, and when you look at the previous paragraph that we looked at last week, verse 28, the disciples came to Jesus and said, hey, why couldn't we cast out the demons? This guy's doing what they couldn't do. But he didn't have the label, he didn't have the official status, he didn't have the same education as they did, they didn't have the same access to Jesus as they did. And John is one of the inner three. He got to see the transfiguration. When Jesus pulls aside three and leaves behind the other disciples, John is in that inner core group. And that's probably what prompted their debate about who's the greatest. Well, I was on the Mount of Transfiguration, yeah, but I was standing closer. I had the idea about building tents for Elijah and Moses. And then the other guy says, yeah, but Jesus shot it down, so it was a stupid idea. I'd rather not bring up an idea than bring up a stupid idea that Jesus said is dumb. And so you're just using your imagination to imagine how they can argue about who's the greatest. When we sat in the boat, I was next to him. Remember that pillow he slept on in the storm? I brought that pillow. You know, just clinging to any kind of advantage they could possibly cling to. And then here you have a guy who hasn't even been in the boat with Jesus. And he's casting out demons right on the heels of them failing to cast out one particular demon. And they don't like it. And Jesus is saying, if you're truly going to be great, you're going to help that brother. You're going to receive that brother. Because he's not against us, he's for us. Everyone's not going to have the same privilege and status as you, but we're all on the same team. So stop thinking me And start thinking we. So true greatness, according to Jesus, true greatness is serving the less privileged in the faith. Now many have used passages like this to say that what Jesus is asking for here is to help the needy in the world. Yes, that's good, but that, that, this is a little more specific than that. He's talking about inside the church. We like to play a game of spiritual classism. And what he's addressing is not the poor in the world, the orphans, the widows. There's other passages that address that, and that's perfect for other sermons. But what's happening here is not Jesus trying to meet the needs of the needy world. What's happening here is Jesus sees what's going to happen. These guys are supposed to found the church. They, they are the first church planters. We have churches today because of the work of these 12 or well, the 11 disciples. And what he sees is a heart that's a me first, success driven heart in ministry. And he's saying, that's not going to fly. When you see someone who doesn't know as much scripture as you, you don't look down on them. You receive them, and you pick them up like a little child in your arms, and you help them. You don't ignore them. You address it, and you don't pretend like you don't know anything. Oh, I don't know anything. Oh, what do I know about Scripture? That's like a fake humility. If you've been in church for 30 years, you know a little something about Scripture, I hope. Right? Pass it on. Share it with someone. If you've been here for 10 years, I'll take personal offense. If you like, oh, I don't know anything about Scripture. Every Sunday it's nice, but I have no idea what Lucas is talking about. Then i got a problem. But true greatness isn't diminishing your privilege. True greatness isn't getting rid of your advantages, but using your advantages to serve those who don't have the same advantages. Using your privileges to help those in the faith that need help to grow in their faith. Here's how important this is, guys. It's not optional. And this is scary. And if you're sitting here feeling like, hmm, I feel like I've been a little guilty of spiritual classism, there should be a little lump in your throat because now Jesus is going to get into how important this is. Verse 41, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. How do you gain reward in Christ's eyes? It's by giving that help, that sustenance, that life-giving assistance, that water to drink, To those who are thirsty in the faith, spiritually speaking, especially in this passage. And I love how he turns it to them. He's not saying, if you give a cup of water to someone else. He's saying, you're going to be in a point where you're the spiritually vulnerable. Where you're the one who needs water. Where you're the one that needs help. And these guys are going to die for the faith. And people can ignore you or help you. And the ones that help you, those are the ones that gain a reward What about those that don't help? What about those that hurt others? Look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin or to stumble, what little ones? Is he talking about kids? No. Just like he wasn't talking about bread. What is he talking about when he's talking about bread and leaven? He's talking about teaching and the gospel. He's not talking about little children. He's talking about vulnerable disciples People that don't have the spiritual status that the apostles have. Whoever causes one of these vulnerable ones, these little ones, who do believe in me, right? So these are disciples, but they're little in some way. Help my help my unbelief, right? Whoever causes them to stumble, the ESV says sin, but the word is to scandalize, to stumble them, to offend them, or to cause them to fall away in their faith. It would be better for him if a great millstone, a really heavy rock, okay? It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That's a torturous death, ain't it? A big heavy rock tied around your neck and then you're chucked into the ocean. That's mafia, right? That would be better off. You would prefer that than the wrath and judgment that's waiting for you from the Father. If you use your superiority, your privilege, and your status to cause people to go, man, I tried church, but I just felt like I just couldn't fit in, and I didn't know anything, and they all used big words, and no one tried to help me, and so I just decided, never mind, and I don't go to church anymore. Woe to that church. Jesus doesn't drop this bomb every single time he says something. But it'd be better for you to drown it would be better for you to get drowned in the sea than to cause hurt to a young disciple in the faith. Don't hurt them. Help them. So Jesus is using this as a proof of faith. I hope I'm not going out on a limb here, but in verse 41, when he says, if you help those that are vulnerable, if you help the little ones, if you receive them, then you won't lose your reward. I don't think he's talking about a crown, a mansion, a golden car, I don't know, whatever we might think is going to be cool about the new earth. I don't think that's what he means by reward. I think he means you will gain the Father. Where do I get that? Back up in verse 37. What do you get if you receive a child? What do you get if you welcome and are hospitable and help a little vulnerable disciple in the faith? If you receive the child, you receive Jesus. And if you receive Jesus, you receive the one who sent Jesus, who is the Father. And then you might go, well, the reverse isn't necessarily true. If I don't receive a little one, if I don't receive a little one, Maybe I just, I still get the father. And he's going, no, no, no. You get judgment. You get thrown into the sea under God's wrath. So what Jesus is saying is, this is is proof of discipleship. If you say, I'm a disciple, but your life bears out the fact that you really could care less about other disciples, you might end up in an ocean. But if you're a disciple, you say you're a disciple and you help other disciples, Jesus is saying, That's it. That's it. That's greatness. That's discipleship. Discipleship is helping others in the faith. I don't know any other way to read this. At first glance, you look at this, and it just looks random. Jesus talks about the cross in verses 30 to 32, and then it's an argument about who's the greatest in verses 33 to 37, and then some random guy is casting out demons, and it ticks the disciples off in 38 to 40. And then 41 to 42, it's about receiving little ones and not losing your reward or hurting little ones and getting thrown into the sea. And it kind of looks random, but the vulnerability of young disciples in the faith connects all of it. So verses 30 to 32, Jesus is recentering them on what counts. What is church about? What is discipleship about? How easily can church and the Christian life become about status? Pretty easily. I don't hear a lot of this here, and I thank God for that. I thank God I'm not in a church where I hear a lot of this, but we just hear it through the grapevine so much where people care more about the seat that they favor. I mean, James brings this up in his, in his epistle, doesn't he? If you care more about who's sitting where, you got problems. Someone took my parking spot. I like to park by the shade or something. We come in, and we want to hear the songs that we like, our favorite songs. This can so easily become about something else other than what he talks about in 30 to 32, the death and resurrection of Jesus christ he's already taught them if you're going to follow me you take up your cross it's a cross driven life not a success driven life and the cross leads you to greatness it leads you to life and then he just applies it and 33 and following they argued about who's the greatest and he told them that's not greatness that's not you are missing what i just talked about in the cross and they knew they missed it that's why they were afraid to ask him in verse 32 so he explains it, and he gives them a visual, he grabs a little child, and he's saying, see this little child, if, if you've got discipleship wrong, you won't care about others that come along behind you in the faith, you won't care about them. But if you're really following me, you understand that you're taking up your cross, the Christian life is not about you, it's not about you. The Christian life doesn't have you at the front, it has Jesus at the front, and if Jesus is at the front, you're going to care about the people that Jesus cares about, And then the example comes up about this guy who doesn't have official status, and then Mark is saying, see, that's the little child. Not the orphan or the homeless person. We care about them, but that's not the the topic here. The topic is guys like the guy who was expelling demons and was doing good work, but didn't have official status. We all wrestle with this. We have to check our hearts. Sometimes after a service, somebody will say, hey, Pastor, I was talking to someone in the church and they needed something to read and I gave them I gave them a book and my first thing is like, "Whoa, is that a pastor approved book?" Did I sign off on that? Hey pastor, as a growth group we want to do we want to read we want to read something else. You know, I don't feel like this but you know, I could see at some point I could say, "Well, what about my questions that I write?" Right? No, what should my heart be? My heart should be Man, that's awesome. Now, I do want to look up the book, and I haven't, if you tell me that and I haven't heard of the book, I am going to look it up, and if it's garbage, I'm going to tell you. But it doesn't have to be Lucas approved. It just has to match the gospel. And what, uh, what encourages my heart is to see people care about other people and not wait for pastors and elders to do it, but to care that someone needs help to grow in Christ, and I want to help them. I want to be there for them. So if we're going to have our reward and gain the Father, like verse 37 says, then we need to pay attention to the little ones of the faith. If we don't, then we might have to question our own faith. So we don't disregard little ones. If we disregard them, we can hurt them. If we hurt them, we can stumble them. If we stumble them, we've got major issues with God. This is why I I have a heart for churches around the world that don't have seminaries, and they don't have books translated in their languages. Um, And as a church, you have sent me to get education. You have sent me to share that education with believers who don't have resources in places like Novi Sad, Serbia, um, Vietnam, um, even the Trinity thing. Students come from all over the world to learn at Trinity and hopefully take it back to those corners in the world. And so you serve them by unleashing me to take privilege that I've attained by God's grace and to share it with them. But it doesn't just take a pastor. We think about missions and we think about giving. We had uh, Reagan Martin uh, share his story. Uh, And when he was up here sharing about wanting to go down to South Africa, um, we explain to you that, hey, we're taking a percentage of our giving, what we take in, we're taking a percentage and routing it to uh, his ministry so that he can go to South Africa and train pastors to preach God's word instead of some other garbage. So, as you give, he's helped. And I think sometimes we're so allergic as pastors, I'm talking to to pastors, we're so allergic to asking people to give because of so many abusive churches. All they want is money, and then the next week they roll up in some expensive car and you're wondering, where's the money going? But I got to tell you, if a percentage of what you give goes to Reagan Martin and Reagan Martin gets to go to South Africa and help pastors learn how to preach the word, and those pastors go and break into the darkness of the prosperity gospel with the true gospel... That's helping the little ones. That's helping the pastors who don't have big, thick books. They don't know how to read the Greek or the Hebrew. They don't have seminaries to get trained in, but they have someone like a Regan Martin who comes and at least helps them understand how to crack open the Bible and preach what's on the page, brother. And that helps the little ones. So as you think about giving, think about Regan Martin and think about the little ones that are affected and helped the cup of water spiritually that's given to them by what you give. Maybe you're in here this morning and you've been hurt by a church. I hope it wasn't our church, but maybe it was. We're not perfect. Please let us know. But if you've been hurt by other disciples who were abusive, who uh, were spiritual classists, who made you feel like uh, a loser for not being up to par spiritually, as soon as they found out some failure you had in your background, they just dismissed you and didn't care for you, and you were hurt by that, you should have been hurt by that. Stay. Stay. Don't let that stumble you. God's wrath is reserved for them. Don't spend another moment toiling about it in your mind and in your heart. Let God take care of that. Let God take care of the abusive churches. Stay. Grow in your faith. Maybe you're in here and you look at your life and you've not been very helpful toward little ones. Maybe because you don't feel like you have much privilege to help them with. You haven't been to seminary. You don't read the Bible in its original languages. You don't read thick commentaries. And so what am I really going to help them with? I'm not a perfect prayer warrior, you might think. I don't read the Bible every day, and so I'm kind of weak, so someone else should probably help them. Do you read the Bible at all? If I said, turn to Matthew, would you know where to go? You're already ahead of a lot of people. Do you know how to explain the gospel? Do you know why we take communion? What does the broken bread mean? You're already ahead of a lot of people. And so maybe you can start identifying, what are the advantages in my life? What do I know? And let's not get hung up on all the things that we don't know. What do we know? Have you been married a long time? Most people haven't. Can you share some tips? Can you share some stories of God's grace, how he's seen you through, about perseverance? Was it always smooth sailing? Could you help a younger couple that's hitting right past the honeymoon and each other's breath is really starting to stink right now and the honeymoon period is over? Do you remember that hump? Can you walk with a younger couple and talk about life, even if you you don't use big theological words, can you just talk about life? Do you remember what it was like starting out in your career? Do you remember what it was like going to college for the first time and leaving home and being surrounded by a bunch of people that aren't Christian, leaving your kind of Christian bubble? Do you remember what that was like? Could you do coffee with someone graduating? And just say, hey, where are you going to college? I just want to talk. I think we're afraid to help people because we think that it sounds like we're saying, hey, I'm hot stuff. I want to take you to coffee and I'm going to give you the top three tips. You'll never forget them in your life. None of us feel like that. None of us feels like that. But I think that would be a cop-out to say, well, I'm not spiritual enough. You're ahead of most people. Maybe not in every area, but in some area. Career, marriage, life, experience, friendships, heartaches. Have you had friends betray you? How do you prepare our young people or people that are young in the faith to deal with Christians that act like idiots? You're going to get hurt in church. Are our younger people in the faith ready for that? People that are older in the faith, even if they're not educated theologians understand a little bit about the hard knocks of the Christian life and living out in the body, and you can turn around and help others. So true greatness is not about diminishing your greatness. It's about identifying what God has done in your life that is great, giving Him praise and glory for it, and then finding others to share that with. That's greatness. That's firstness. So let's be first. Not by being first in line, but by using our privilege and position to help others get ahead in their growth in Christ. Let's pray.